You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Well, welcome back to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Robert Smith. Today's guest joins us from Sebastopol, California, where she is the Chief Operating Officer of the Sonoma County Fair, Caitlin Finley-Thorne. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Did Robert. I, Thank you for having me. You're, I'm glad to have you. Did I completely butcher your city's name, Sebastopol? Is that what it is? I mean, it's close. It's Sebastopol, but I mean, it's fine. <laughs> I uh, I had not I know your fairs there is in Santa Rosa in Sonoma mm-hmm. County. Um, so how far are you from the fair? Whereabouts is Sebastopol? Sebastopol is more um, west of Santa Rosa, kind of if you were headed towards the coast. Oh, um, and we're not on the coast. Um, and then it's probably about 15 minutes from the fairgrounds. My commute's about 15 minutes. Got it. So you're the COO there at Sonoma County. What can you tell us about your event? The fairgrounds or just all the events that we do? My goodness. Well, the fair, the fairgrounds, I'm sure you guys are loaded, but let's start with the fair. What's uh, Give us a little background. When do you run? What's the attendance? That kind of bit. Gotcha. So uh, the Sonoma County Fair typically runs uh, first part of August where uh, we've been a tradition. Well, in the past few years, we've been an 11 day fair. We used to be more. Uh, We do about over 200,000 in attendance over the course of those days. Um, Some very unique features about our fair is that we do have live horse racing at our fairgrounds and we have a turf track, which is a really big deal. Like the horse horsemen and all the riders love that. Um, And then uh, and that runs Friday through Sunday during our fair, so it's not every day. And then we also um, have one of the, it's probably called the, like, I think it's like the biggest flower exhibit in the state of California, and that is our Hall of Flowers, which is a themed floral garden exhibit where professional and amateur gardeners compete, and it's, they all get certain plots, and they all have to do a certain theme with, within a whole encompassing theme. Um, it's absolutely a gem of our fairgrounds and it's been around for many, many years. And then um, we're also kind of known for being a big ag fair. Um, Agriculture is a huge um, industry in Sonoma County, not only just with uh, the wine, because it is a wine region, um, but also with um, a lot of our ag producers. So we we have a very big ag show, which we're really proud of. Fantastic. Now I'm doing some background research on you before we started the recording. And noticed on your website that you are listed uh, as Caitlin Finley Thorne, JD. So you've got a law degree, and it turns out you got it from Whittier Law School, where I pass by there on my drive to the OC fair when I work that fair uh, regularly. So tell us about your law background. Yeah. Um, well, th- first, thank you for not having that be the first question you asked me, because most people, when they know when they meet me, they always ask, "Why do you like you work in fairs, and why do you have a law degree?" Um, <laughs> which is fine. Um, Yes, so I am an attorney. Um, I do have my, I'm a member of the California Bar. Um, I went to law school because I was kind of going a certain path following my family business. My father is an attorney, has his own firm, which focuses on um, banking law, and he helps, he works specifically with small community banks. Um, And that you know, firm was started by my grandfather, his father. So I kind of was, you know, I de- you know, encouraged to go to law school because that was potentially a job that I was going to um, go into and a career I was going to go into. And um, got to law school, and 
I was, it wasn't quite, I didn't have the heart for it. I just didn't, I realized I just didn't have the heart for it. I, um, it was very difficult, which, you know, it's supposed to be. Right. <laughs> It's supposed to be hard. Not a cakewalk being in law school. Not a cakewalk, but it was, I was realizing that my, this wasn't my passion and that I didn't think I could do this for my entire life. So when I could finally, you know, admit that to myself and, um, I was already halfway through law school, I was already like just about to go into my third year. And so I decided that I wanted to finish because it wasn't going to hurt me to have a law degree in future. Like that wasn't going to hurt. Um, to have on my resume. And so I finished and I um, took the bar, got that done, which was a huge relief. And then uh, went professional, then started working professionally in the fair industry, which was ironically the other family business, which was my mom's side of the family who was always in fairs. So I kind of just switched one for another. So you, you did the degree, but you never actually practiced law prior to getting involved with the fairs. Not in a traditional sense, no. I mean, I never did litigation or anything like that. Um, I was, you know, when I was in school, law school, I, I knew that I wasn't going to do litigation. You know, there's there's different types of lawyers. Um, I was focused more on transactional law, which was like, you know, contracts. You know, that's wills and trusts. It's it's not going into courtroom. It's just kind of creating policy or you know, creating contract law, and. That's more what I've done in my roles with affairs. I've helped in that capacity where I may be the one who I'm not the I am not the lawyer of our fairgrounds and I don't hold myself out to be, but I can, you know, I look at the contracts, I, you know, help develop templates and stuff like that, which is where the degree helps me um, or I use it more in a traditional sense. So you do you do apply some of that knowledge, but not not as an attorney per se. You're not practicing. So yeah, not practicing, yeah. But so, yes, but I do use the, I definitely use the knowledge. I mean, absolutely. It has impacted how I view things, what I was, what I was trained on and what I've learned during law school. I just, you know, I'm just not, I don't count myself as like a traditional attorney. Of course. Well, I mean, if I was, a, if I was one of your board members and I, I hire you is get you hired a COO and I find out you have a law background, I'm going to expect you to use some of that knowledge to make oh, yeah. sure contracts and things look like they're on the up and up. But how did you end up with, Sonoma County. How did you end up going to that fair? I, it kind of, uh, it was kind of luck. Um, I was working when I entered professionally into the fair industry, I started as um, kind of an intern, um, ground level interim event person at the Alameda County Fairgrounds. And I was there for about three years. Then there was an opportunity at the San Mateo County Fairgrounds um, to be the fair operations manager. So that was just somebody who's focused 100% on fair. And so I jumped at that opportunity and uh, both Alameda and um, San Mateo are in the Bay Area. Like they're not, you know, they're in different counties but they're relatively within the same footprint or area. Sure. And then um, was kind of looking for a new opportunity. And I heard through the grapevine that Sonoma was looking for a new deputy or COO and jumped at that in we started talking probably, I got hired in February of 2018. So within your organization, who's primarily responsible for planning the fair? It's definitely a team effort. Um, we all have different aspects of the fair that we're in charge of within the, the, the team structure. Um, the primary is, is our CEO. Like she technically is the fair manager. So she's in charge of all of that. Um, 
so I would say she's probably the primary of the fair people, even though we all contribute, you know, we all have different areas that we control. Sure. Now you're um, fairly young in this, fairly new to being with this fair. Aside from COVID, which we'll touch on in a moment, what are some of the challenges you faced as becoming COO? You know, um, part of it, well, we'll talk about COVID. That's, that's been a challenge. One of the um, really unique things about Sonoma County, which I've really come to really love, is that it is a, it is kind of like a small but big community. So the fair is kind of like a small, like a com- very much a community fair. Um, previous fairs that I've been associated with are in very highly populated areas. So community engagement is there, but it's, it might, it's not read, it's not countywide or you're always kind of trying to get new people in. At Sonoma County, you know, the, the county itself of like 500, it's about 500,000 people. Um, I would say if I remember statistic correctly, at least 75% of the population are native born. So they are from Sonoma County, they live in Sonoma County, they may have gone away for a little bit, but they are back. So they have a huge history with the fair or with that community. So, you know, people have been coming for 10 years plus, which is great. I mean, that is, and for me, that was a very different mindset to kind of see versus um, other fairs I've worked at because it's, so that traditional element, like those traditional elements are fair, are very, very, very uh, strong in Sonoma County. And as kind of an outsider, you know, I'm not from the county, I'm, you know, I'm from Southern California originally. That was, um, I, I don't want to, it was a challenge to learn at first. And then once I got it, I was like, oh, okay. So it, it really behooved me to learn, you know, the county history or really understand from people who are from there, like, who the movers and shakers are a little bit more, you know, and what the history or the longevity of it and realize that change has to come. It needs to come to always keep modernizing the fair, but it needs to be done with a huge uh, respect to the tradition of what the fair is. Yeah. I think that I see that a lot with fairs where there seems to be a constant tug of war between the, well, we need to modernize and change things and, and, give a fresh look to the fair and the old um, adage of kind of like, well, we've always done it that way. And mm-hmm. it's where do, it, every fair has got to find that balance um, between those two things. I'm curious if you weren't, um, if you weren't working in the industry, what do you think you'd be doing? Would you have gone into law? It's a great question. Um, probably maybe I might have just based on necessity, you know, if I didn't right. go into the fair industry, Um, I, I knew that it wasn't quite my passion. So I was, I don't know if I would have done it. Um, I probably, I probably would have found my way into probably nonprofit world, the nonprofit world and like with events and cause I grew up at a fairgrounds, like I grew up running around fair fairgrounds. So even if I didn't go into the industry, having an event-based knowledge, you know, I've always been around events. I've always like participated, helped plan them. I could see myself going that way. Um, and then probably within the nonprofit world, I don't know if I would have ever really just gone traditional lawyer. Yeah. It sounds like that was, you know, from what you were saying, it's, you got partway into it and thought, well, I'm this close. I need to finish. Yes. I was like, I was already halfway. I'm like, oh, 
not gonna this, i can't well, it's not gonna get worse so right <laughs> well, well law school's not cheap so it's like if you no. fail at that point you are throwing a lot of money down the tubes yeah i and and i that was part of it and also i never really fully just quit something in my life you know i mean yeah you know not to that level where i was just like no, I'm just not going to finish that. And I probably selfishly did not want to answer the question. Why did you not finish law school for the rest of my life? Oh, that would have been, you would have gotten tired of that one. I would have gotten, yeah. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> answering the question of what, oh, do you not practice traditionally? That's fine. Cause it doesn't matter. I have the law degree and I passed the bar. Like that's right. I don't have to do anything after that. Correct. Correct. Now let's take a trip back into early 2020, as painful as it might be. Uh, you know, we got this virus coming on shore. It's starting to make its way around the country. I think there's a lot of people around the industry. We're watching it, mm -hmm. but I, I get the feeling from the guests I've spoken with. A lot of people thought this will be, you know, two, three months, it'll be a little disruption and then we'll get back at it. And then Houston cancels. And that seems to be the turning point where our industry goes, Oh, we're in trouble. What are you thinking when you see that Houston shuts down just days into their event? I was absolutely shocked. I mean, like you were saying with your other guests, we were we were at Sonoma County, we we're in the same boat where we were kind of like, okay, this is just gonna be a little temporary bump. You know, our fair is in August, we should be fine by August. And then, you know, and I think that was just us just being naive about the, what's gonna happen. And yeah, definitely within a few weeks, we were kind of like, oh, wait, no, no, this is very serious. And this is, no, we're this, we're the writing starting to get on the wall for what we could be able to do. And then when Houston canceled, it was very shocking. And it was a huge, you know, you know, light, you know, not light bulb, but it was like a huge just moment when you're like, okay, yeah, this is not going to be the same. Um, and in, especially for us in California, because we're, <laughs> you know, we're uh, a little bit more locked down and, you know, our you regulation, like, yeah, they're not gonna, I'm like, if Texas canceled, we're not gonna be able to do anything in California. <laughs> <laughs> that was my thought. I was like, that's not good. Um, and I, and so our, our um, you know, our heart just went out to everybody because having to cancel a fair in the midst of fair is just horror, is just mind boggling to me. I mean, I, you know, I know people who work that fair um, and I just thought, how much money did they just lose without any ability to get that back? Or like, how do they go on from there? You know, we're that, you know, we're several months away from fair. We potentially could cancel this and not lose a lot of money on our end, but, right. you know, give people enough notice too, that they're not shocked. But I could, yeah, I was just. For most of the most fairs I found that canceled well in advance, they were able to preserve that budget that would have been for, mm -hmm. you know, advertising, you know, their ad spend and marketing and whatnot. And they were able to hold back some of those dollars and which ultimately became their lifeboat to get through to 2021. Um, from a leadership standpoint, though, what are some of the key things that you all did to begin responding to this crisis? So when we first started to see about this, I mean, it quickly came down that we needed to everybody who who could work from home needed to work from home. So, you know, we shut down the offices um, and we started getting, you know, kind of getting everyone situated in that. Um, we paused all spending on fair pretty quickly, you know, and for us in, you know, March, we can do that. You know, it, you know, there's money that has been invested in fair, but it's like, we can pause for a little while without it harming kind of our normal timeline. Um, so we immediately paused all spending for fair. Um, 
we, from an interim, because I oversee the interim department at our fairgrounds, we immediately started talking to our interim promoters that are like within March and April and started kind of talking with them and saying, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Um, and getting out ahead of it as best we could. Um, we started communicating, or you know, our CEO started communicating with the county of Sonoma. Um, our fairgrounds is a county property, so we are a county fair. Um, so she was able to get included on like county department head meetings so that she could get updates based on what the county is hearing, which was really good. Um, and then probably as it kept going on, you know, after we kind of got through the first week, maybe second week where we realized, oh, okay, I don't think this is going away. Then there started to be real serious conversations about, you know, what are our finances? Where are we? You know, what can, you know, and yeah, just kind of taking a look like, hey, what do we have? And can how long can we go without income coming in based on our, you know, what our expenses are? And then it was, okay, what can we cut? And so that was happening within probably a, probably a three week, four week period. Right. After. And like you said earlier, you don't just do the fair, you're in a year round event center. So at this yeah. point, I'm guessing you are, you were having, you know, RV shows, non-fair rentals, things like that, that were already canceling. Yeah, we were having events. Um, a lot of them were seeing, could we, could, you know, cause again, nobody really knew how long this might be. Sure. You know, everyone's like, can we move to the fall? Okay, let's move, you know, let's move six months. Let's do, let's see if we can go into the fall dates. Uh, so it was definitely a lot of puzzling all that together. Um, and then there was, yeah, but, and then some just had to say, you know what, we're gonna cancel outright. Part of the challenge that we faced was just the lack of communication, not from the fair, but when, you know, this is this is everybody struggling to understand what's going on. What are the new regulations gonna be? I mean, we were basically just shut down, but we don't know what it looks like in three months. So trying to balance the lack of information that we have, because it's like, it, as everyone says, like we're all looking into the same broken crystal ball. Like we're all just trying to figure it out and, right. and kind of making estimations. Cause, and basically a lot of them just had to cancel. I mean, most of the events just had to, and right. we, we returned, um, we returned all of their deposits. You know, if anyone had to cancel for COVID, because especially for these interim events, you know, this is their business. This is something that, you know, they're going to be financially struggle with. Um, we returned all of any money that they had paid to the fair, or if they wanted to roll over their money and deposits to another event, they could. Yeah. Eventually though, you guys get to a point where decisions got to get made. I'm curious, did that, was that your board that made the decision to pull the plug or did it come down from your governor? It came from our board of directors. So, um, we, April, end of April was when our board made the decision to cancel our 2020 fair. Um, and that was based on all the, you know, all the information that we had, the reports that we were getting from the county and from the state, and just realizing like, and also just the, you know, the recommendation from staff, because at that point we were like, we can't hold off paying money or doing activities for fair. You know, we have to start planning this more aggressively in order to do it. That's our normal timeline. So if we can't, if we're not willing to put that money up to plan it, and then potentially not have it, then we need to we need to stop now. Um, so that was kind of part of the that was all part of the decisions that were going in to it. And I mean, and it ended up being we couldn't do it anyway, so it'd be right. fine. 
Yeah, most of the guests that we've had on the show just had to face outright cancellation. I know there were a handful mm -hmm. of um, we spoke to that modified several of the Texas fairs that went. They still did live soccer rodeo, but everything else was canceled. Um, but regardless, for all of us, it's been was a heartbreaking year. How do you and your staff feel when you know that decision? Like you know it's coming, and then the motion finally passes to cancel the fair. How are you guys feeling at that point? we were pretty devastated. I mean, we understood why. I mean, it, it wasn't like we couldn't understand what was going on, but it was incredibly sad. I mean, we put a lot of effort into planning the fair. We were very excited about this year's fair. So it was very difficult. And it also kind of felt like it was signaling, I would, you know, that it was, well, it wasn't signaling, but like for me, you know, I, as part of my job, I oversee all of the vendors and the, for commercial and for concessions. And for like some of our third party partners, like the vendors who rely on the fair circuit for their business, I was just like, I, I'm like, how are they going to handle this? How are they going to survive? Because that was just, I couldn't, I mean, as a fair, we could potentially pivot, you know, we did have reserves that we could rely on for a certain period of time, but I just was really worried about our partners. And so just was wanting to constantly check in with them. For our community, it was very difficult as well. Um, we got, you know, we did get some backlash, not a lot, but of course there's always the negative people who feel like we shouldn't have done that. Um, where we tried to, when we made the decision and, and the thought process before that, we tried to think of, you know, we tried to make our message as clear as possible and also as supportive as possible, realizing that we're just, we're very sad about this, but um, that we're doing it for the sake of our community. Um, and we, we, we did make mentions of things that we may get to do during our normal fair time so that we can still have elements of fair. Um, we were very clear that we would, you know, because by the time we made the decision, there are livestock kids, junior livestock exhibitors who have purchased their animals. So they're already right. raising their animals. They've already invested in yeah. that. So we wanted to make sure that they had an outlet, um, that the fair was gonna provide an outlet for them to at least complete their project. And we were able to do a virtual auction. We, we weren't able to do a show, um, but we, we did do a virtual auction, which was actually very, you know, it was very good and very successful um, for what was going on. And then we were able to do a drive-through fair food event, which was a big success. Everyone, that was a lot of fun. Um, it was huge. We did it over two weekends, which happened to Cohen. Like we did it the two weekends of when fair would have been. So it was kind of like naturally, you know, this is what we the could right do. time. People were naturally ready to get their yep. corn dog fix on and their funnel. Yeah. Cake. And it, it definitely exceeded all of our expectations, which was awesome. It was awesome. So that was, those were like positive things that we, you know, the silver lining and all of this, Sure. but when we had to make that decision, it was a very difficult decision for the staff. It was very difficult decision for our board and overall the community was supportive like they understood why and even though they were upset you know they were still supportive of the decision so that that helped in kind of dealing with that well hopefully by you know the time summer and rolls around for 2021 this pandemic is on its way to being in our rearview mirror hopefully you know the vaccine starting to get distributed while we're recording this and you know we'll see where it goes mm -hmm. from there in the meantime you are still in the middle of a pandemic and you do still have to plan for 2021. How do you go about that task when there's just so much unknown out there ahead of you? It, you know, it, it, that has been an interesting struggle. I mean, we've kind of, um, 
our board won't make, we've, we've picked, we've determined like kind of drop dead dates. Like what are dates along our journey where we have to say like, we have to make a decision about this then. Um, so for our board, we haven't made a decision about the 2021 fair. It will be very based contingent on how the vaccine rollout goes out. Um, because I don't think our county public health officer will let us do a mass gathering unless we are really have a great robust vaccine distribution and most of the population has been <laughs> vaccinated. Right. Um, so the, the, our process, our thought process is we basically right now, we decided in at the end of 2020, I mean, we hadn't really, we had just kind of announced the fair theme. We hadn't done a ton of marketing. So we decided, okay, we're just going to move all of that over to 2021. So it's going to be the same fair theme as what we were planning for 2020 for 2021. So that helped. So it was like, okay, we're not having to reinvent everything. Right. And that will help us on some on cost savings in terms of our development piece. Um, and then we kind of just have been on hold. We basically all planning's on hold. We're kind of just talking about it. You know, we're kind of working through things, but in terms of engaging sponsors or engaging vendors or anything like that, we've kind of waited um, until the board makes a decision. And our board is hoping to make a decision by the end of February first part of March based on the information. Um, cause that, but cause that is how long we can wait before we really need to start spending money sure. on the fair. So now are you guys in a position that you feel like, you know, even if you have to cancel in 21 that you get, that there will be a 22 fair. I mean, where, where are you guys at? Cause I'm starting to feel from getting a vibe from people. Not everybody's wanted to say it publicly on the podcast, but several mm -hmm. have said, um, you know, in the little discussion after we quit recording that there are some concerns that, Hey, we could lose 2020, but if we lose 21 are, if we are in big trouble, where do yeah. you guys stand with that? We, we are okay. Um, our, you know, if we can't have a 2021 fair, we do have enough to get us to 2022. Um, so, and some of the dates that we have picked in terms of decision-making deadlines have been based on how, you know, so that we can preserve what we need to for the 2022 fair. We've also been very clear, you know, in our communications, especially with our, with our board and people who ask us, it's like, we doing a pared down version of fair might be a possibility, but we right. can't lose money on the fair. Like we are not in a position at all to be able to lose money on the fair. So doing a fair that has only 25% capacity or maybe 50% capacity is a not, is just not something that we can yeah, afford to do. It's not going to matter if you yeah. have 50% capacity and you lose $300,000 on the fair. Exactly. So financially for us, if we don't have a 2021 fair, we do have enough to get us to 2022. What is also helpful or you know a bright spot is even if we can't have fair and depending upon the timeline of the vaccine rollout we do think we could have a robust fall and winter for our interim events so that is sure. additional revenue that's coming in that can then support that decision and we continue to examine all of our expenses to find out where we might be able to reduce or or do something different so that we can preserve as much as we can. Yeah, absolutely. I know that I was kind of surprised when we had Marla Calico from IFE on the show, how many fairs make the majority of their revenue from non-fair events, from, you know, RV shows, all those, you know, 
home and garden shows, graduations, proms, all those things that you rent your facilities for that I think she said, and I might be misquoting, but I think it was like 80%, 85% of fairs actually make more from non-fair. So even if you lose your fair, like you said, you know, if you could get to September, October time and be mm-hmm. able to say, all right, we're, we're open for our, you know, even in, in limited capacities open for those non-fair events, at least it can start generating some revenue. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I don't think our spread in terms of how much we make versus digital versus fair is, you know, I mean, it's, it's a huge chunk. I mean, um, because we have horse racing that does bump us up just kind of with like the ADW, you know, all of the sports betting and the, sure that piece. Um, but interim, I mean, we saw, I mean, over 2020, I mean, we basically, we saw an 80% drop in all interim revenue. I mean, that, and that's hard. Um, and we tried to find, and we were able to do things. We were able to do some events. Like we were able to um, do drive-in movies a few times. Uh, we've done, um, there are some, when certain restrictions started to um, lift, we were able to do like retail events. So something like, um, like a gem show where it is like a retail based kind of situation we were able to do. Those aren't, you know, those aren't events aren't going to like raise our money. Like, and just like, there aren't, there aren't the cash cows like crazy, like maybe like a concert or, you know, a festival, but they, you know, they help. They are huge help. Um, We do have an RV park at our facility, which has been going strong this entire time. And that has been an absolute lifeline for us where, you know, that, that revenue hasn't really dipped over the course of 2020. So that staying consistent has been a huge help in just, you know, keeping, keeping us above the bottom line. Now at that RV park, how many, how many spots do you have on that, on that area of your fairgrounds? Such a great question. I know I'm supposed to know off the top of my head, but I always, (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm like, Oh God. Um, they, um, I believe, Oh, yes. I know it's written Just, somewhere. Yes. I think we're at about, I want to say for some reason, 125 is a number that keeps coming to me. Got I it. could be wrong on that. Um, Do you have a lot of full-time RVers that are, are in there right now or? So the way that we have transient? it, um, we do, it's kind of a combination. Um, so we do operate the RV park that you cannot stay more than like 28 days because after a certain point you can establish residency. Got it. And that gets into some fun technical stuff on then, the law then, side. Then your law side kicks yeah, in. Yeah, then the law side has to come into play. And I'm like, oh, no. Um, but we do have a lot of contractors that we do have staying with us that are on longer. What we do for that is we do an actual like specific contract with them. So Got that it. that establishes kind of, you know, the rules of residency. But we have a lot that have been there for a long time because they're working on... Um, fire recovery they're working on projects um through all throughout the county so we have a it's a it's kind of a mixture of kind of a transient that are just there for you know a couple of weeks versus those that have been there for a couple of months sure yeah just ask because i know early in the pandemic i remember um hearing about campground here especially i know here in new mexico like campgrounds were closed they were ordered Mm -hmm. to be closed and you know, the challenge of that is you do have a chunk of the population out there in this country that are full-time RVers. That's where they live. They're on the road full-time. They may have established residency in California or Texas or Florida or wherever, but they travel. 
and then you're told you that RV park that area has to close, and I just wonder where they all went because they got to go someplace. Yeah, I and what I kind of thought too, like, are we going to have to shut down? But I think because we weren't a campground where it was like a true RV park, and it was like, right. I think they were able to. Uh, still be able to operate. I did, you know, and there's a, there happens to be a KOA, you know, in a neighboring uh, city. So we were kind of like, what are they doing? Right. You know, are they having to shut down? And they didn't have to um, okay. because yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you shut these areas down and you're like, wait a minute, there are people who live like this. Like, where do they go? Exactly. Um, so you know, and it, to some extent, there's a lot of us as entertainers now. I mean, we're ready. Oh, yeah. We own a home here in Albuquerque, but there are a lot of entertainers out there that they full-time RV it and, you know, they park it someplace, but usually in Florida in the winter. And then when fair season starts, they start up and they go do their show, their juggling show or whatever it is. Yeah. And I just, I, I, when I first heard that they were forcing RV parks to close, that was my first thought was that you might as well be foreclosing on those people. Yeah. Now what, now where are they going to go? Walmart parking lot? Come on now. Oh I yeah. Mean, I, and I think, I think there was, I get the intent is basically is they didn't want people to travel at the end of the day, they right. I, I they wanted, they didn't want people to travel, but they didn't realize that people aren't traveling necessarily for leisure. You know, they're traveling because like they are transient or they, right. um, they, they can't stay at a park for that many times. So it, it, it was interesting. I mean, there were, I believe eventually the state came out with like guidelines of like, how to not how to operate it but like how to do it covid friendly because you know most you know an rv park would have potentially a shared common space or a shared uh bathroom and shower facility so how do you function and and do that so once those came out like we we wanted to make sure of course we were abiding by them as much as we could which was which was good but yeah i i was definitely like are we gonna have to shut the rv park because that would have just been devastating to us right well, I mean, when you can consider fire recovery, I think a lot of people, and we've talked about this again over and over on the podcast, so many, so many people in our community look at our fairs and they see it's the Ferris wheels lit up for 10 days or so out of the year, mm-hmm. and then that's it. Mm-hmm. But they don't realize, you know, when you look at Florida, when a hurricane's coming on shore, those fairgrounds are stocked with lineman trucks. They're headquarters for, for disaster relief. And the same thing happens for you guys, whether it's opening your barn so that, you know, if horses and livestock are in trouble and in the path of the fire, you're opening your barns, you're opening your facilities for, you know, linemen, for firefighters, for recovery workers. We have an enormous impact on our communities and I'm hoping people maybe start to see that. Um, But I think in every state, you know, things, people just look at it a little different as we're recording this, where, I mean, we're looking at several fairs down in Florida starting to open, Manatee's open. Mm-hmm. South Florida fair. They've, they're doing what's called a, a mini fair. Yeah. Are y'all keeping an eye on what's going on in Florida to kind of look at their mitigation strategies and, and how they're operating? We, we are, we are also talking, you know, with other industry individuals to kind of, and hear how they did it, how, you know, what the, what it's going to come down the pipeline. Um, because we want to, we would like to be able to have our fair, of course, you know, and so we do look at the mitigating efforts, like, what are they doing? What can we afford to do while still, again, not losing money on the fair? Um, and I, I'm excited that Florida gets to do that. I know though that California is not gonna. I just sometimes look at it and I go, "That's so great that they get to do that." I know California is not gonna do that. Like, are you 
Are you saying California's got a little different political structure than Florida does? Uh, just just slightly. This, I mean, what is I, the I, status I, of your lockdown there? I mean, are you guys still come like we hear I I have this thing where if something big happens, instead of going to national news, I will go to Google and I'll look up like Santa Rosa, California TV stations, and I will go pull information locally because they're almost yeah. always more accurate. Yep. So I don't, we, we hear things of what's going on in California from the national news. And I always wonder if it's kind of the same thing as it maybe a little more sensationalized. What are you guys looking at in California there as, as far as restrictions right now? So right now, the entire state is under regional stay at home orders, like okay. where people are supposed to not, you know, it's only really supposed to be essential work, essential travel. Um, we're kind of at our, we're at kind of back to almost the beginning, like when it first came out and we all had to like stay home for two weeks, oh, wow. it's kind of back to that restrictions. Um, the state of California, uh, the state divided the was, I'm sorry, the state was divided into five regions and each region would be under a regional stay at home order until that entire region had, or it would go under the regional stay at home order if their ICU bed capacity fell below 15% for the entire region. And it would stay under the regional stay at home order until it came, the ICU bed capacity came, was above 15%. So it's kind of um, an open-ended stay at home order where even though, you know, counties may say, oh, you know, until this date, unless that ICU bed capacity raises, we're, we're staying under that, that um, that stay-at-home order. So right now, the region that we're in is the Bay Area region. Yeah, we're below 15%. So we are under um, an, uh, the uh, stay-at-home order. So for us, um, you know, it's only supposed to be essential events. It's only supposed to be like indoor dining is, well, that's been gone for a while, but um, outdoor dining is not allowed. It's takeout only. Um, it's, it's limited. It's supposed how's, to be very limited. How's your your local community? How do you, how are people responding to all this? I mean, are businesses, restaurants going to make it through? Or are they are people starting to get COVID fatigue on this? Definitely some COVID fatigue for sure. I think that's happening nationwide. Um, but yes, definitely struggling. Sonoma County really hasn't ever come out of. I mean, we've we're back into the kind of the most restrictive. But before you know, the ICU bed kind of, that was your benchmark, you know, for the regional state home orders. Um, we were on a tiered system and Sonoma County never got out of the most restrictive tiered system. Right. So, I mean, I'm like, things haven't drastically changed for us back and forth, but you know, it is very tough. Our, our local, we do have a very, very active and robust, like restaurant community, you know, food provider community, given our region, the wineries have been, you know, hit hard because they're not able to really, you know, there was a long time they couldn't do tastings. Um, so a lot of the, and like Sonoma County is kind of a destination location. It is something sure. that does rely a lot on tourism. Is that know, because for, of wine country? Because of wine country, because of our agriculture, you know, because that there is, tourism is, is a big piece to us. So, you know, that hospitality industry has definitely been hit really hard. Um, so we have seen, I mean, the community is very, our community is very resilient. Um, we have proven that time and time again through fires, 
So there is this idea of Sonoma Strong, um, but it has been very difficult. People are tired, you know, when restrictions started to come up, you know, be lifted a little bit, you know, people were flocking to, to do something. Right. Um, but overall, um, I think the community is doing its best to, st- you know, stay together and be strong. Um, of course, there's a lot of, in any community, there's always political beliefs and political, you know, they all have different views on how things should be done. So there has been a little bit of that, but I've never just, I never kind of walked away with going like Sonoma County is taking this seriously. I know the county is taking it very seriously. They want to do what's best for the community. Um, but there's absolutely definitely a level of fatigue because we've pretty much been in this for a year. And on top of that, you know, this started in March of 2020 for us, but before that we had just come out of a, a fire in 2019. Yeah. And then we had two fires during 2020 in the middle of all of this. Yes. So we're, people are tired. Yes. Oh no. <laughs> and we're starting, even here in New Mexico, I know we're starting to feel it. It, you know, you, you mentioned that tiered, um, kind of tiered approach. That's what our governor has us under currently. It's a county by county deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a red, yellow, green, and we can't even put kids back in school until we've been in green for two weeks. Well, just to go from red to yellow, we've got to average, we've got to get our, our average daily number of cases down to 54 yeah. for, for Bernalillo County, which is, yes, we're Albuquerque. It's our biggest county. Mm-hmm. We, I don't think we've been below 85 this entire time. Yeah. Um, I think there was a, an analyst I heard that was looking at it and, and guessed we could be looking at 24 to 26 weeks before we get to yellow. Forget green. Yeah. That's just to get to yellow. And it's like, yeah. you start to look at that and go, it's just heartbreaking because it feels like every time we met one of their one of the governor's gating criteria, it got changed and, and the goalposts moved. And Oh, I mean, absolutely. Hey, I oh, yeah. We had that too I, where they, it, was, it feels like they're constantly changing the rules. Yes. And... Oh, hi, hi, puppy. Yeah, I know. I was like, oh, he came out. Somebody walked by. Well, you know, <laughs> our dogs do the same thing. A leaf blows by the front door, and we've got to announce it to the whole world that there's something outside. Yes. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, I know you're trying to protect me, but like, you need to be quiet. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that's probably one of the, you know, kind of back to the moving the goalpost to me idea. It's like, that has honestly, for me, been one of the biggest challenges through all of this with COVID is that, you know, it's constantly changing what you need to do. You know, I can't plan a month, two months, three months out really, because the rules could change. Yep. And so that's constant, that constant change and fluidity is, is tough. It's tough to, you know, especially for me, cause I'm like very type A, I'm a planner like this. I'm just like, <laughs> Like, I just figured this out. What do you mean you changed everything? Yes. Um, and it has been a challenge um, because, you know, and that's the other thing too, is, you know, when we're talking with event promoters or we're talking with people about fair, they're like, well, what do you think we're going to be in like two months? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. We're going to be in two weeks. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of erring on the side of caution. Sometimes I'm like, well, here's what we think, but we're also really re- being realistic that this probably is what might happen. Yeah. Um, because yeah, it's, it has been very, very tough and the numbers have kept rising and, and California is struggling. Um, Southern California is, is very, very, very struggling, um, but with their numbers. And so it's, 
Why do you think SoCal more Cal, more so than you guys? I'm sorry, what was the question? Why do you think s- Southern California is struggling so much more than y'all are up in the north? Well, Southern California is more populated. I mean, be, it has bigger counties um, like San Diego, LA County, sure. Orange County. Those are three massive counties. Um, so it, it's, a, it's just higher population. Um, I don't know why maybe, I, I kind of, I don't try to speculate on, I, on that. I mean, Northern California, even more North than us, which is in the Northern region. I mean, they're doing fine. You know, they're not as, you know, their numbers are not as bad as ours. I think some of it has to do with just dense populations. Sure. When you move into more Northern California and kind of even higher up in the state, you know, people are not as compact in communities, you know, it's more rural. So they're not as, so they're not as, you know, likely to infect everybody, but in Southern California or even like the Bay area, like Santa Clara, San Jose, where it's like the true Silicon Valley. Right. It's just tightly populated areas. Got it. So that's so you that's tend my to have more people that are are maybe skirting rules and getting together with friends and doing things like that, and there's just more opportunity to transmit. Absolutely, yes. Would make sense. <laughs> Has the past year taught you anything about yourself? Absolutely. Um, well, it definitely taught me to probably worry a little less. I know that seems odd, but it 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 <laughs> in a year it full kind of, of worry to worry less. Well, it it more taught me you know, if I was anxious about something at work or a potential conversation I needed to have with, you know, a, a client or some, you know, just getting worked up about some of the craziness that is at work, at work, just in my normal day to day, I kind of realized, okay, there's far worse things that I'm dealing with now. You know, this isn't going to kill you. Um, so kind of that helping me kind of balance a little bit more at work and kind of just realizing that there's only so much I can do and that is okay. Um, I've learned probably a lot more about, I've gotten more, I've thought I've gotten, have, I've had chances to really think through things usually because we're going from fair to events from fair to events, it's constant motion. And now it's like, not, it's very, you know, I've had to stop and think and you know, pause and kind of reflect, which is unique, which was something that I didn't work into my routine very often. So getting to think about, okay, you know, how do I feel about this? You know, what does the future look like for this industry? What does it look like for me? How do I think I can impact it? Um, and getting to kind of develop some of that. Um, so that's, that, those have been positive things. Um, it also has taught me how to have maybe some tough conversations with family members about the, the virus and, you know, how family, di- how kind of that works in our family dynamic. Cause it's like maybe one of the first times we've ever had to really have like health conversations sure. with, you know, parents or with siblings and stuff like that. So that was, I learned kind of, that was very illuminating and learning kind of what does that look like and what do I feel? So, that's kind of it. What, um, you know, looking back on your, your history in the fair industry and in management, is there anything that you know now that you wish you'd known when you first started? Yes. I'm trying to probably do not panic about every little thing. 
you know, it's been a consistent theme when I've asked that question. <laughs> it's, in the grand scheme of things, it's going to be okay. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that would be my biggest, it's just like, don't, don't get fret. Don't just focus in on these small little things. I mean, those are important, but at the end of the day, you need to be able to function and you need to make sure that your affair is operating at its best capacity. And, you know, you got, don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah. You can't, you, you there's a certain point where you got to open the gates and have your fare, you know, and, and yeah. have your event. And there's same things that may not look exactly the way you wanted them to. I mean, I know as an entertainer in this industry, there's all the times that I'm like, this is how this, what I do needs to look. And I get to a fair and I'm like, well, it's not going to look that way. So how do we make yeah. it work for those guests so that they have a great experience? And it's no different with you guys. Uh, something doesn't really work the way we want it to, but how do we make sure people are still having a great time? Absolutely. And it just takes planning and resources, you know, I mean, and speaking of that, you know, in a normal year, we all meet at conventions and, and trade shows and we do everything from education to you know, shopping the trade show. I'm curious when you go to someplace like IFE or WFA, what is it? What's the thing that you look forward to most when you go to those conventions? Usually it's pretty much just seeing people and connecting, you know, we, it's probably the first time we've maybe seen each other. We don't get to travel to each other's fairs, at least from the fair perspective, you mean, because it's very difficult sometimes if you, especially if you're going on the same time. So it's being able to connect with, people and see them and talk about your year or, you know, get to have some conversations with our vendors and providers and get to see them in a non-fair setting. You know, it, it kind of, you know, you're not on the grounds, you're not having to potentially worry about a conversation or running to something or your radio is going off. You get to just connect in kind of a more human way, um, which is one of the reasons, which I've always loved about convention. So getting to network, getting connect, getting to connect. And then, um, the educational pieces are also very helpful too. I mean, I do, I do take a lot of value in some of the educational pieces because you want to hear how other fairs are doing it. You want to hear about those things so that you can potentially incorporate them into yours. Sure. Um, when you're at conventions, do you do any entertainment shopping or is that somebody else on your staff that does that? I don't. Um, yeah, there's usually somebody else on our staff who specifically is in charge of our community entertainment and our entertainment budget. So I've right. not... So far in my career, I've not been that person. I still right. like engage and will come up with ideas and stuff like that, but it's not directly me. Right. But when you, I mean, you understand this, this aspect of a, at a trade show on the last day of the trade show, is your badge facing forwards or is it facing backwards? Um, it's usually facing forwards. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, it's probably, I'm probably not even at the trade show. Um, if I'm very honest. <laughs> fair enough which honesty, is i'm like that's i'm like good. i would love to say i'm like no i'll just be honest it's um yeah i have to think about we have the last one i think the last day i maybe am not there mainly um but i do try to i do realize the importance and i don't want to and i do realize how difficult sometimes too is for the people who are in the trade show so i try not to turn my badge around we just we have this i think everybody in the industry knows we just kind of have this running joke of uh you know that third day every everybody comes up and down the aisle has their badge turned backwards with a bit you know might as well wear a t-shirt that says leave me alone i know which and is and that, I don't, I don't blame them because I've watched long enough. I've been doing trade shows since 2009 and I've watched enough, you know, enough of the, the attendees, the exhibitors 
standing in the aisle trying desperately to cram their stuff in everybody's hands. And I'm like, that just doesn't seem like a real beneficial approach. Like it seems, doesn't seem very economical. And, you know, I try to figure out before I go to a, a convention, you know, who are the 10 or 15 fairs that based on where my route is starting to look like mm -hmm. that would be most beneficial. And then I go and find, you know, I mean, it might be out of 30 fairs and then I go and try and whittle that down to, okay, but who actually books the type of grounds entertainment I have? And I try to narrow it down so that, you know, I'm not just standing there flailing and it just <laughs> it looks pretty awful sometimes in those trade shows when they're just cramming stuff in y'all's hands. Well, I, and I, I yeah, I, I think your approach is great and that, and that probably yields probably sometimes more response to it. Um, and, you know, we, I've, at the trade shows, like I, I, we've walked away with some amazing partnerships and kind of really gotten to see something and, you know, but I, and I can only imagine how tough that is too, for, you know, entertainers and our, and our providers who are doing that. So, I mean, um, but yeah, I, I can, it is tough sometimes it's tough. Well, it, it's tough. I think it's tough for us. If you only do business at the trade show, if that's the only place you're trying to get seen. Um, I figured out a long time ago that, you know, well, even if you have to leave a note that says, Hey, I'm in an ed session. We'll, you know, we'll be back in an hour, um, going out, going to an ed session, going to meet people, going and having non-business engagements with people where you're just talking to folks makes a real difference. Cause mm -hmm. there's a number of, of conversations I've had over the years that were, you know, a, a 15 or 20 minute conversation around nothing to do with entertainment. And then they come in and they see me in the trade show. And because we just had that conversation, you know, after lunch or whatever, they're more likely to talk to me. They may not be, they may not have the budget. They may already be booked. They may not be, who knows what the reason is. And they're not able to, to bring me in. But my yeah. thing is you never know when that person two years later is going to be the fair manager or the entertainment mm -hmm. director and be the decision maker. I've had a number of people over the years that I've become friends with that, you know, they were an assistant ag director. They can't do anything for me. And three years later, they're like, I'm the fair manager now. Yeah. Building the relationships is what matters the most. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I, I, and that's, I would absolutely agree with that. Like building relationships and building it where there isn't that necessarily sale prep sale pressure is super yep. beneficial. Um, and I really appreciate that. So yeah, I've developed relationships with some of our you know, providers through that. And, you know, it makes it easier to talk about that or then brainstorm and approach that. So I, I very value the idea of building a relationship because at the end of the day, like we both need each other. We both want this to work. So if I can, if I can, you know, not feel pressured in the approach or, you know, yep. then that usually my defenses come down. Yeah. Well, and I think in the long run, we want to do business with people we're friends with, people yeah. we're close with that, you know, and there's plenty of people that I'm friends with in this industry that have just said, you know, Robert, point blank, we don't book that kind of a grounds act like that. We have five stages and I put hypnotists, jugglers, all that up on a stage. Your type of thing isn't going to work at our fair. Okay, cool. You know, yeah. my, my thing has always been no is the second best answer you can give me. And I, I much rather would just be told straight up, that's not going to work for us. And then I can move on and, and from a business standpoint and, you know, try to fill out my route. I just, I don't know. I think there's a balance that maybe some entertainers need to get a little more balance and be a little less, a little more chill when it comes to the trade show and, and doing the business. But 
you know, if I suppose if they're going to be over the top and, and annoy people, that makes me look all the more appealing because I'm much more chill about things. <laughs> There's a contrast in what, in business offerings then. So listen, yes. Caitlin, we're, uh, we're about out of time. I'm glad I could get you on the show and, and find out Thank what's you. going on up there in Sonoma County. Before we go, everyone I bring on my show goes through a little speed round of questions. So I'm about to ask you uh, five or six questions here and you give me your best answer to each. You ready? Yes. Favorite ride at the fair? I will never tell. What do you mean you won't tell? Do you actually, you have one, but you just won't disclose or you don't really have one to begin with? I will never, I will not disclose. My mother, I, my mother would say it would be the pink elephant ride though. <laughs> All right. She's not disclosing funnel cake or cotton candy. Ooh. Funnel cake, uh, funnel cake. Yeah. What's your favorite place you've ever traveled? Uh, Patagonia in Chile. Wow. That's a heck of a trip you took. Yeah. And uh, on an airplane, speaking of travel, window seat or aisle seat? Window. I like to sleep. There you go. Coffee or tea? Coffee, but decaf coffee. And how do you take it? with a little uh, milk. Got it. Last question. If a movie was made about your life, which actress would you want to play you? Emma Stone. Really? I was thinking you'd want to go with Claire Danes because you two are like complete doppelgangers for each other. Well, thank you. I mean, yes, Claire Danes is just, mud, not mud. Well, I don't know how old she is, but I, she's older than me. So I want to go with maybe like, you know, pretend that I, you know, <laughs> roughly Emma Stone and I might be the same age. So it's like, you know, right. Claire Danes is beautiful though. So I wouldn't, I would yes. not fault that casting either. Yeah, you do. As I got you on camera today, I was like, wow, she really does look like Claire Danes. <laughs> Doppelgangers. Yeah, Thank Emma you. Stone, I don't get that very often. Though. I appreciate that. Yeah. Emma Stone though. I can't fault you there. She's a fantastic actress. Caitlin, listen, if folks want to reach out and get a hold of you, where can they contact you? They can um, contact me through my through email, which um, is kfindleythorn, so K-F-I-N-D-L-E-Y-T-H-O-R-N at SonomaCountyFair.com. Or um, they can always reach out to through the, if they want to reach out to the fair through the Facebook page, um, I'm the one who monitors that. So they can always find me that way as well. But awesome. email's the best. Awesome. Caitlin Finley-Thorne is the Chief Operating Officer of the Sonoma County Fair in Santa Rosa, California. Caitlin, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you for including me and thank you for doing these podcasts. These are amazing. You've been listening to the Fair Game Podcast. Fair Game is a production of Robert Smith Presents. For more information, please visit robertsmithpresents.com.